Because I encourage questions, and we've had one already, who said, I'll answer it after the service? Let's go ahead and answer it now. The question was, why do we open the Sabbath, open Shabbat, with our little service over there in the corner? Why do we do that? First thing I want you to do is open up your scriptures to Isaiah chapter 58. That little service is called an oneg, O-N-E-G, and oneg means delight delight. So Isaiah chapter 58, verse 13, begins, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, that's an oneg, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, or speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. So the little service we do at the beginning of Shabbat is called the Oneg, as we call the Sabbath a delight. The first thing that happens then is my wife lights the two candles. Normally on a Jewish table at the start of every day, the wife lights a candle to indicate the new day has begun. And on Shabbat, it's two candles. At the close of Shabbat, there's a service called Havdalah, which requires at least three candles or three wicks. That's a multiple of three. The biggest Shabbat candle I have ever seen for Havdalah was in the old city of Jerusalem, and it was 300 wicks. You would only light that in the dead of winter. Never do that in the summertime. Okay, then we read. Turn in your Bibles. Let me show you what we read. And that's in Genesis chapter 2. And then I'll tell you why we read it. Genesis chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done and he rested. That word rested is he Shabbated. He had a Sabbath. On the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested. He Shabbated from all his work which God had created and made. You see that? That's where the seventh day was originally set aside by God to be his special day. And it's his special day from then into forever. Now go to Exodus chapter 20. Let me show you why we read that. Exodus chapter 20. Starting in verse 8. which is the first verse that begins in the Ten Commandments, the discussion of the Sabbath day, and what is the first word? Remember. So this is not something that is beginning now. We are to remember it. Remember when God set it aside. So that's why we read the verses where God set it aside. It goes on to say, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God, in it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, 
nor your stranger is within your gates for. What's that word for mean? Because. Here's why. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. To keep the Sabbath day is a sign. Where do we find that in scripture, that it's a sign? Did somebody say? Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 31. Verse 12. I knew I heard it out there somewhere. Exodus chapter 31, beginning in verse 12. Beginning in verse 12. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, What's that word saying? You all know it means it's a quote. These words came out of the Lord's lips. What do you say in Psalm 89, 34? My covenant I will not break nor alter the, the word that has got out of my lips. And what did Messiah say in Matthew 4, 4? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So these came out of the Lord's own lips. Speak also to the children of Israel. That's a broad term. It includes the mixed multitude. Saying, surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So keeping the Sabbath is the sign that we worship the true and living God, just as my wedding ring is the sign that I am married to my wife. The Sabbath indicates we are the bride of the Lord, as we've always been. But then we have a cup of juice and we break bread. Go to the book of Acts chapter 2. This we have always done from the time of Mount Sinai forward. Because at the start of Shabbat, we remember the great miracles of God. And do we find the Sabbath as a commandment from God before the Ten Commandments? Yes, yes we do. In Exodus chapter 16. But in Acts chapter 2, let's look at verses starting in verse 42. And they continued steadfastly. Acts chapter 2, wait a minute, what is this? This is Shavuot or Pentecost. These are the very first people getting saved and brought into the church, right? It's in verse 38 that Peter says to repent, let everyone be baptized in the name of Yeshua the Messiah for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 42. They continue steadfast in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread. And in prayers. That's what we were doing over there, the breaking of bread. So each Shabbat, they would gather together beginning of Shabbat. They would light the candles. They would break the bread. They would have the cup. They would remember God's provision for us in the wilderness. And remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So that's why we do what we do over there. It is not communion. It's not related to communion. Communion uses should be unleavened bread. This is leavened bread. This has nothing to do with communion. 
It is simply that whenever people gathered together and would share a meal, and the bread and the cup constitute a meal, it indicated that we were all one in fellowship. So whether born Jew or born Gentile, when we come to the same table and partake together, it shows that we accept one another as being equals. Okay, now to the book of Galatians. We're in the book of Galatians. For those of you who are new, what we do here is we take a book of the Bible and we study it chapter by chapter, verse by verse to say, what does the Bible say? Currently on Friday night, we're studying Galatians. On Saturday, we're studying the book of Deuteronomy. So we are today in Galatians chapter 4, verse 7. Let me give you a chance to find it. Galatians chapter 4, verse 7 says, Therefore, uh-oh, you can't start with that. Therefore, what does therefore mean? Yeah, it refers to something previous because of what we just said. What we just said is when we are saved by faith, we become children of God. And God has sent forth the spirit of his son, as the Holy Spirit is described in verse 6, into our hearts. And the spirit cries out, Abba, Father. It gives us the assurance that we can go to God and call him what? Daddy, our Father who art in heaven. Is that the way Messiah taught us to pray? What gives us the right to call God Abba, Father, Daddy? Adoption. That's right. Saved by faith through the blood of our Messiah, Yeshua, who died for us. So verse 7 says, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. That means we used to be slaves. We used to be in bondage. But what we were in bondage to was sin. And salvation by faith sets us free from the bondage to sin. And now we're no longer slaves, but we're what? A son. Who obeys the father, the slave or the son? Both, but for different reasons. The slave obeys out of fear of punishment. The child obeys out of a heart of love. And if a son, then an heir of God through Messiah. Whoa, that's important. Let's go to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. We're joint heirs with Messiah. What's Messiah the heir of? Everything. Everything. If we're joint heirs, what are we heirs of? Everything. Everything. Have you read about the new Jerusalem? The streets are paved with gold. Wow, the foundations are jewels, the gates are pearls. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That means if you're trying to earn your salvation through the law, you are not the seed of Abraham, nor are you heir of the world that is to come. How do we become the seed of Abraham? Through the blood of Yeshua. Through the blood of Yeshua, we're saved by faith. How do we know that? Because we just read it in Galatians. Go back to Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. We'll start in 26 for context. For you are all sons of God through faith in Messiah Yeshua. 
Do we have to earn our salvation? No, it's not possible to earn salvation. Salvation is by faith. It says, for as many of you as were baptized in a Messiah have put on Messiah. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Messiah Yeshua. And if you are Messiahs, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we become heirs by faith. What's that reference? That's Galatians chapter 3. We read verses 26 to 29. Yep. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. If the Holy Spirit does not bear witness to you in your heart that you are a child of God, you've got to wonder, is the Holy Spirit in me? Have I truly been saved or not? How do we know that? Romans 8, starting in verse 16. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Messiah. If. Oh, there's that little word again. If. Indeed, we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. That if indeed we suffer with them means when persecution comes, if we turn away and renounce our faith, then we're not children of God. We're not joiners with Messiah. We must stay strong in our faith. We must not let our faith diminish. We cannot turn away from God no matter how bad things get. Then back to Galatians chapter 4. Verse 1, to remind us what we learned last week about how a slave and a child are the same and how they're different. Verse 1 says, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child. What was that word for child? Do you remember? What's the British word for a diaper? A nappy? Nappyos. Nappyos. Yeah, it means a baby unable to care for ourselves. As long as he's a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he's master of all. Meaning, when the child is too young to act for himself, then he does whatever he's told. Remember when that used to be true? Kids actually obeyed their parents? Well, back in biblical times, it was still true. Go to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Verses 1 through 7. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Messiah Yeshua, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already. What does the word mystery here mean? Does it mean like a novel? Like a detective story? No, it's from the Hebrew word sowed, which means a, dip, a deeper meaning. In the, test, in the Old Testament scriptures and the prophecies, it told us about salvation was for all people. But did everybody understand that? No, they did not. So Paul has explained it, how it's always been the case that salvation was for all who will put their faith in God through Messiah. 
Verse 4, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge and the mystery of Messiah, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. He means they may have had some indication, but they didn't understand it clearly like we do now, having been revealed to us through the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body. What does that mean, of the same body? Is that like John chapter 10 where Messiah is the shepherd and he has one flock? And the flock is made of Jew and Gentile. That's in John 10. One flock, one shepherd, one path. It says, and partakers of his promise and Messiah through the gospel of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. And also on this topic, Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Remind them, oops, you're not there yet. Give me, if ever I'm getting ahead, you just give me a ho sign. <laughs> Wait up. I wish I could do that when I'm not able to be here. <laughs> yeah, that's when you put it on pause and back up. <laughs> Afraid I'll miss something. <laughs> it's live, remember? Titus 3, number one. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities to obey to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. And through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Spirit, whom he poured out in us abundantly through Yeshua the Messiah our Savior, that having been justified by his grace we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now this is a faithful saying. In these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. What are good works? Is that sin? Really? Does the scripture tell us not to keep walking in sin? Yeah, I'm still looking for the one where Messiah says, now go and sin again, but I can't find that verse. Let's go to... Let's go to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Verses 16 to 18. Hebrews chapter 6 verses 16 to 18. Oop, let me give you a chance to find it. Hebrews chapter 6. Starting in verse 16. Brother Lyon? Yes, ma'am. 
wanted to ask in Titus 3.5, is that being saved, is that a uh, participle, meaning ongoing action? Titus 3.5, let me tell you exactly what it says. Titus 3.5 is a orist indicative active, which means it happens in general without an assertion of time, can be used of a present or future event, which while it sounds like it's past tense, it's not. But most of those, Rachel, are participles. This one just happens to be aorist, indicative, active. Yep. So Hebrews chapter 6, starting verse 16, says, For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, that's all those saved by faith, the immutability of his counsel, which means his words do not change. Immutable means unchangeable. Confirmed it by an oath. If God confirms something on an oath, will he ever break it? The answer is no. That by two immutable things, two things that cannot change, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So how do we know that we are heirs of the promise? Because God confirmed it by an oath. And his word does not change. He does not lie. Hebrews chapter 11. If we are to be heirs of God and joint heirs with the Messiah, what kind of gratitude should that cause to arise in our hearts? What kind of love for such a loving father should we be willing to show? Hebrews chapter 11. We'll start in verse 6, though the key verse here is verse 7. But we'll get a running start. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, him being God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. And then is there a period? No, there's an and. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Is there a difference between diligently and casually or are they the same thing? They're definitely different. So by faith Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen had rain fallen on the earth before Noah built the ark? No. So imagine standing there as God says to you, you being Noah Hey, I'm going to cause a huge rain and a flood, and you're going to need this big boat. He's going to go, what? What's rain? A rain? What's rain, God? What's that? <laughs> so, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. I want you to go back and look at this because sometimes we think that, well, gee, the first one ever saved by faith was, of course, Abraham. Oh, no. No, it's long before Abraham. How long has salvation been by faith? Forever. Forever, from the beginning. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Okay, let's go back to Galatians chapter 4. We're up to verse 8. 
So verse 7, if you're to summarize, it says, you're not a slave, but you're a child of God. The slave obeys out of fear of punishment, but the child obeys out of the love of their heart. What does John 14, 15 say? If you love me, comma, keep my commandments. How about 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3? What is the love of God? That we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So when people say, Wayne, if, you, if you're keeping Shabbat, you're trying to earn your salvation, I say, no, no, I'm trying to be a loving child of a loving father. Verse 8 says, but then, indeed, when you did not know God, when was that? When did you not know God? Yeah, before you got saved. You serve those which by nature are not God's. Yeah, let's go back to Romans chapter 6. I don't know about you, but before I got saved, I didn't run around worshiping Baal and Ishtar. Yeah, maybe not. not yeah, Ishtar. but yeah, that's right. That's not covering the whole gamut, are we? Let's go back to Romans 6.16. 6, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves or servants, same word in Hebrew, to obey. You are that one slaves whom you obey, whether sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So again, close your eyes and think back to the Garden of Eden. God said, do not eat from that tree. And Satan said, yeah, come on, eat from the tree. And to whom did they listen? They listened to Satan. That's why the Bible refers to Satan as the god of this world with a little g. The one whom you serve, the one whom you obey, that's the one whose you are. Does it matter that it was Satan versus God? No. Satan didn't even tempt Adam. Who did? Eve. So he listened to Eve instead of God. Was that any better? No. So if God said, remember the Sabbath day, over and over. And the Pope in the 4th century said, no, no, no. You're forbidden to keep the Sabbath. You must keep Sunday instead. And we listen to the Pope over God. What does Romans 6.16 tell us? You have to be obedient unto righteousness. And God said to obey and keep the Passover. At the Council of Nicaea, Constantine said, no, 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 no. You're forbidden to keep Passover. You must keep Easter instead. Have you noticed that in some years, Easter and Passover are a month apart? Yeah, Easter doesn't come from Passover like sometimes we're taught that it is. Who said, don't eat the piggy? God. God. Who said, you must eat the piggy? Pope. The Pope. Who do we listen to? Who do we serve? Who do we obey? Food for thought. Go back to Galatians chapter 4. We're up to verse 9. But. So verse 7 started with therefore. Verse 8 with but. And verse 9 with but. Do you get the idea what Paul is trying to do is walk a very fine line. He has told the people in Galatia that salvation is by faith. And others have come through and said, no, 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 Paul got it wrong. 
Salvation comes through circumcision and earning salvation through the works of the law. So Paul's trying to get across to them new salvations by faith. You don't earn salvation. Once you get saved, then you keep the commandments because you love God, not to earn salvation. So in verse 9 he says, But then indeed, when you did not know God, that's verse 8, you serve those which by nature are not gods, but now. Well, if that was but then, what is but now? What's happened in between time? You got saved by faith. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? So verse 9 is saying, once you've been saved by faith, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, you've come to know who God is, and you've had a relationship with him, how can you then go back and say, no, I was wrong, I've got to earn my salvation through works. But notice it says in verse 9, or rather are known by God. After you have known God, or rather are known by God. That should bring to mind John chapter 17, verse what? Verse 3. Let's go to John 17, 3. John 17, 3. Are any of you here tonight because you're trying to earn your salvation? If you are, you missed the boat. Wait. Yes, sir. I heard something years ago by one of those radio preachers that I respect. Has stayed straight by the word. He said, "We get mixed up and, and caught up in becoming human doings rather than human beings." Okay. You know, be still, know that I am God. Yeah. You know what he said. Yeah. Very insightful. It was A. W. Tozer, if, if you guys know him, and many of you do who said we get so concerned about being accused of trying to earn our salvation that we've forgotten all about repentance. John chapter 17 verse 3. And this is eternal life. How do you want to know what eternal life is? How do you get there? This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Yeshua the Messiah whom you have sent. Do you truly know God? Shame John didn't tell us how we could know whether we truly know God or not. But he did, didn't he? Because the one who wrote John 17, 3 also wrote 1 John chapter 2. By the way, that's kind of a verses 3 and 4. Wide spectrum there. If yeah. You, if you know God. Yes. I mean, because when I first got saved, I knew a little bit about God. And as I have aged in my relationship with God, that has gone so wide, and I still am striving to know God. That uh -huh. knowing God will never be filled till I am in His presence. Okay. Now let's look at First John chapter two, verses three and four, and see what the same man who wrote John seventeen three said. He gave us a test of how you can know whether you know God or not. You said First John. First John chapter two. Verses 3 and 4. A problem is, 
We look at the Bible as if it were written in English. And it wasn't. And although words translate roughly into English, they don't always carry the same meaning. Like I keep using the example of the word love. You know what love is. You've done it all your life. Love is that nice, strong emotion and attachment we have to people and things. That's not what the word love is in the Bible. The word love is an action verb. How do we treat people? Do we treat people as we would want to be treated ourselves? So 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 lay out the test for us. In many Bibles, including those you find online, it will even say in big bold print, the test of knowing him. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. The reason it says that is the scripture says, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. So if you know God, you will love God. If you love God, you'll be obedient to God. It just naturally flows. In the old covenant, where were the commandments written? Stone. Tablets of stone. In the new covenant, the New Testament, where are the commandments written? They're written on the heart, which means it becomes our desire to do them. Where do we learn that they're written on our heart? Jeremiah 31, 33. Or we just look in Hebrews chapter 8, since we're in the New Testament. It's in both places. So when I hear preachers say, we, don't, we shouldn't be keeping God's commandments. You can't do that because we're New Testament Christians. I, I say, well, let's look and see what the New, New Testament says. What does the New Covenant say? Hebrews 8.10. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws, that's the Hebrew word is Torah in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So it's not that the commandments have been abolished. They're taken and written upon the heart so that it's our great desire to do them out of love for our Father. When I first got saved, the church in which I was a part of, I was told and taught that I do not read the Old Testament. Yeah, I understand. Strictly New Testament Christian, this yeah. is all you read, you yeah. go back there. Yeah. Well, guess what that made me do? Yeah. Go back there. <laughs> what I wish you had said was, if we take all the Old Testament out of the New Testament, all the quotes and references, we're left with a pamphlet. Amazing. It's amazing yeah. once you start reading the Old, how much of the New is really actually the Old. So. Yeah. yeah, they just quote so much of it. Okay, back to Galatians 4, verse 9. So the question becomes, do you really know God or not? And that's something that you have to look inside in your heart. But verse 10, ah, here's where people start going, oh, oh quit keeping Shabbat, etc. Because it says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. But for what purpose are they observing them? To earn salvation. To earn salvation. Is this how we earn salvation? Absolutely not. But did the Jewish non-believers teach that this was the way of salvation? Yes, they did. 
And what did Messiah have to say? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 15. Could this also refer to the pagans who were observing uh, whatever Christmas was before it was Christmas and, and all that? If that's the group that Paul was talking to, yes, it would be the very same thing. Well, that's where these people came from. Yeah. Out of those right. And after Matthew, we're going to go to Colossians and we're going to go specifically to talk to that issue because you're absolutely right. In fact, that was my next note. I just inter I interjected one. Shame on me. Matthew 15. Matthew 15. Is there anything wrong with replacing God's commandments like keeping the Sabbath with a man-made commandment like observe Sunday? Let's read Matthew chapter 15 and see what the Lord said about it. Because my opinion and a cup of coffee is worth a nickel. Used to say my opinion in nickels, a cup of coffee, but you can't get a cup of coffee for a nickel anymore. But if you're a used cup of coffee, that's not worth much. Okay. Matthew 15, verse 1. I'll quit being silly. Then scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Yeshua saying, Did God have a mean old English teacher that gave him a thousand page book to write? No. So there's a significance to the fact who were from Jerusalem means they have been sent by the Sanhedrin because Daniel chapter 9 verse 26 tells us that Messiah would come in what you and I call the first century. So whenever there was a potential messianic figure, the Sanhedrin would send scribes and Pharisees to go watch and observe to see, could this be the Messiah? And they came from Jerusalem to Yeshua saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Is the tradition of the elders the same as God's commandments? No. Oh no. This is talking about the man-made rules and regulations of the Pharisees. For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Talking not just about a hand washing, but a special ceremonial hand washing called netilat yedayim. Which is washing with a two-handled cup. You put water in a two-handle cup, you pour a little over one hand, grab the other handle, pour a little water on the handle, on the hand that held the first handle, and now you've complied with the commandments of the Pharisees. He answered and said to them, Why do you transgress the commandment of God? Because of your tradition. For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses his father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say... Whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me as a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and honor me with their lips. But their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. Out of Messiah's own lips, what is your religion worth if it's based upon the commandments of men? Nothing. When it says, and in vain, that means nothing. Go to Colossians 2. Does that indicate they think they're worshiping God? Yes, it indicates they think they're worshiping God because that's what they've been taught. Colossians 2. If you were to ask the scribes and Pharisees, are you on your way to heaven? They would have said, yes, absolutely. 
If you had asked the people, are the scribes and Pharisees on the way to heaven, they would have said, oh, absolutely. We wish we could be like them. What did the Lord say? They're not on the right road. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 expands on Galatians chapter 10. Colossians 2. How many of you heard preachers teach from Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17? Haven't gotten there yet. Okay. Let no one judge you in regard to food or drinks, etc. Every time I've heard it taught, that we start with the word let. But is the first word in the verse let? No. First word is so. Does so indicate a new topic? No, it does not. So go back to verse 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Did Messiah in his death, burial, and resurrection disarm God? No. These principalities and powers refer to Satan and his minions. So the so is because Satan has been defeated. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Messiah. If you're reading from an NIV, verse 17 reads, which were a shadow of things to come. Because they want you to think it's over and done with, but look at what it says. Now, every preacher I've ever heard preach on this says, see, this says not to do these things. But let's look again. Is it don't do these or don't let anybody take them away from you? So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Messiah. They teach about Messiah. And that's why you observe them. That's why you observe them. Let no one cheat you of your reward. Okay, this is important. Taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. That tells you now exactly what we're talking about. Does the, do the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God teach false humility and worship of angels? Or is that ascetic Gnosticism? So in verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he defeated Satan, who is behind ascetic Gnosticism. Which is the idea that, like in Mormonism... We can become gods if we go up through the various aeons and ascend through special knowledges. Gnosticism comes from gnosis, which is the mind. So let no one cheat you of your reward, which is eternal life, of course. Taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding to those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his gnosis, his fleshly mind. And not holding fast to the head. Who's the head? That's Messiah. So it's don't let them take away from you these things that teach of Messiah and take you back to ascetic Gnosticism, which did you what good in the past? None. So verse 19, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Messiah from the what? 
basic principles of the world. That's ascetic Gnosticism. Why is the living in the world? Do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. So now that you have repented, you turn to God and you've started to observe these things God commanded, don't let people take them away from you and bring you back to ascetic Gnosticism and teach you once again to try and earn your salvation through works. See, it wasn't just the scribes and Pharisees that taught works-based salvation. That was also the pagan world. So while you may have heard all your life that this says, don't do these things, it's don't let anybody take them from you and replace them with the basic principles of the world according to the commandments and doctrines of men. What did we just read in Matthew 15? If your worship is based on the commandments and doctrines of men, then it's vain, it's empty, it's of no effect. What's your question? Well, it's kind of off subject, but I don't want to forget to ask you. Um, okay. But I think it was last week or the week before. Last week or the week before. What did I do? You made mention of something to do with Thanksgiving, that it was it started somewhere else. Oh, I just answered a question. Okay. In the, so there was nothing there I needed to know? No, uh-uh. When the Puritans got to America, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. Later, the government said, we don't, want it to, we don't want anything associated with those old Jews. So they took Thanksgiving and they put it in, in November and disassociated it from anything scriptural. Oh, okay. Thank you. Yeah. And they gave thanks to the Indians, right? <laughs> <laughs> they did. They gave thanks to the Indians for teaching them how to grow corn and stuff, but that's okay. Neither here nor there. Let's go back to Galatians. Chapter 4, we're up to verse 11. So verse 10 was, you observe days and months and seasons and years. That's to earn your salvation. Can you earn your salvation? No. I don't have to continue the sentence. The answer is going to be no, whatever I add. Salvation is by what? Faith. That's the way it's always been. And did Paul not tell us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Seed there being capitalized as Messiah. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Messiah. This I say that the law, which was 430 years later, that's when it was revealed at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, 430 years after Genesis 15, 6, where Abraham believed God and was counted for righteousness, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God and Messiah that it should make the promise of no effect. Once God made a promise that salvation's by faith and he seals it with the blood of Messiah, will he ever change it? No. Messiah is said is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Salvation's always been by faith. It's only been by faith. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You can't buy it. But once you get saved, how do you respond to a loving God? 
through love. And if you love me, keep my commandments. So verse 11. What's that? I said that's just too easy to be right. Okay. Verse 11. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. What's he mean? I'm afraid for you. You're turning away from the gospel. Yeah, I'm afraid you're turning away from the gospel that you might not have been saved at all. Where do we find out how the church council in Jerusalem resolves this issue in, from Galatians? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because Paul makes this great preaching about salvation is by faith. It's always only been by faith. You can't, you can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You can't be saved by circumcision. He's still getting pushed back. They're still fighting. Their scribes and Pharisees pushing back and saying, Paul, you're wrong. God cannot save Gentiles. God can only save Jews. You've got to circumcise them, Paul, or God can't save them. How do we know? It's in 1 Corinthians 15. Did I say 1 Corinthians 15? It's Acts chapter 15. And then 1 Corinthians 15. I got them out of order. Acts chapter 15 reminds us exactly what the issue is. All my life I've heard preachers say the issue in Galatians is once you're saved, should you keep God's commandments? That's not the issue at all. If you don't know what the issue is, You'll misunderstand the answer. Acts 15 verse 1 comes after Galatians. Because Paul's getting so much pushback, he had to come back to the other apostles in Jerusalem and say, we got to resolve this. Acts 15 verse 1 says, And certain men came down from Judea. That's where Jerusalem is. And taught the brethren. That's in Galatia. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Huh. Look at verse 6. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter, and when there had been much dispute. It's not like Paul said salvation is by faith, right? Everybody said, oh yeah, right. There's much dispute. Peter has to rise up and say, wait a minute, guys, wait a minute. You're telling me that God can only save Jews? Remember Acts chapter 10, when I went up to the house of Cornelius the Gentile, and he and his house got saved? And then they turn to, in verses 16 and 17, and say, now let's look back at the prophets of old, who said that God would save the rest of mankind. That's verse 17. So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even the Gentiles who are called by my name. In verse 19, James, the half-brother Messiah, says, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. What kind of word is turning? It's a participle. It's in a process. They don't know what to do. So we command them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled from blood. Those are the four things that characterize the pagan temples. If they truly are turning to God, 
They can't continue in the pagan temples. You can't split your time. That's called lukewarm. And the next word in verse 21 is for. What's for mean? Because Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So if these Gentiles who are turning to God want to learn God's commandments, statutes, and judgments, they can come into the synagogue and learn. Go back to 1 Corinthians now. I really did want to go to 1 Corinthians. I just had to take that detour. First Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 and 2. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are saved. It's actually our being saved before Rachel asks. It's our being saved in the Greek. If. What's that word if? Conditional. It's a very powerful word, isn't it? If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So will people try and convince us to live a different gospel than Paul preached? They will, but you cannot give in. It's a shame that Paul never told us that once we get saved, we should stop walking like Gentiles. I think he did. You think he did? How about Ephesians 4.17? Let's look at Ephesians 4.17. Ephesians 4.17. Ephesians 4.17 Ephesians 4.17 Ephesians 4.17 Is it too warm in here? Yes. Okay. Verse 17. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord. Is this true or a lie? It's true. That you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. In the futility, that word means perverseness of their mind. So how should we walk? Verse 21, if indeed you have heard and have been taught by him as the truth is in Yeshua, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul says to these Gentiles that have gotten saved, you cannot any longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk but you must walk in true righteousness and holiness what's the opposite of righteousness 
lawlessness. So if you can't walk any longer as the rest of the Gentiles walk, that means your walk is going to look a lot like the Jewish people who are believers. What's that? Don't tell them. Okay. All right. All right. Back to Galatians. There's only two choices, right? There's Jew and Gentile. There's not a third. Okay. Oh, you're not woke enough. I know. Chapter 4, verse 12. I'm not putting that on tape. Okay. (laughs) Brethren. Who's he talking to when he calls them brethren? To believers. I urge you to become like me. For I became like you. You have not injured me at all. What's he mean I urge you to become like me? That's the same as 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, which says, imitate me as I also imitate Messiah. So if they're saved by faith, they should be fully confident in their salvation. They don't need to help God save them. You can't do that. God is sufficient. Oh, in verse 13. Mm -mm -mm, Look at this. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preach the gospel to you at the first. Because? Yeah, you know that because of physical infirmity, the answer is because it's not because. Uh It's not. It's in. It's in. You know that in, the weakness of the flesh is the way it should read. I preach the gospel to you at the first. He preaches to them because we, all of us, none of us, have the ability to live a sinless, perfect life. We're all what? Sinners. So if they want to try and earn their salvation by being sinless and perfect, where will they end up? Lost, right? Because nobody, you or I, have never been sinless and perfect, and we're never going to be. And that's what he means. It's because they don't have the physical ability to be perfect in the eyes of the Lord that he preached the gospel to them in the first place. Yeah, that's the first thing I want you to know is that because of physical infirmity makes no sense because it's not translated correctly. Also include that he has such terrible eyesight again, because then he goes on to talk about you give me your eyes. Yeah, but you added a word here. There's no my here. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So it's because they are physically unable okay. to be physic to be so sinless and perfect that they could save themselves. That's why Paul preached the gospel to them in the first place. And now here comes somebody else that says, no, you've got to be circumcised and keep the law perfectly to save yourself. Paul says, that's, that's nonsense. So now he gets down to the trial in his body. Verse 14, in my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject. 
but you receive me as an angel of God, even as Messiah Yeshua. My trial, which is in my flesh, he has been shipwrecked, he has been beaten, he has been stoned. He bears a lot of scars in his body from what he's been through. Um, they say he had even a lot of facial deformity from the stones, from the breaking of the skull, etc. Let's look at Galatians 6.11. You're right, one of his infirmities was his eyesight. Galatians 6.11, they say his eye had been damaged by the stoning. So in verse 11 of chapter 6, it says, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. And then back in Acts chapter 4, verse 19. Acts chapter 4, verse 19. Let me see what it says. Yeah, I don't think that's the one I wanted. Um, we know other places in the book of Acts where he's been stoned, he's been beaten, he's been shipwrecked. Those were the ones that I wanted to refer to. Let's see what Acts 24.19 says. Nah. So we'll just let that reference go. We'll go back to Galatians. But they didn't reject Paul because of his physical deformities. And God will not reject you if you repent and turn to him in faith. Just because you have some things in your background that were not so pleasant. Wait. Yes, sir. Edmund. The, the reference to him being stoned and all that sort of thing, it's in 1 Corinthians. Um, um, I can't remember the chapter, but I, I, I read it yesterday. So, uh, in 1 Corinthians. Yeah. Of things he went through in 1 Corinthians. Yeah. He talks about having been shipwrecked, stoned, beaten. Snake bit, all those things. He really suffered. So it's back to Galatians chapter 4, verse 15. It says, What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. He's saying, You were so blessed by the preaching that salvation is by faith. And that you need to repent and embrace God and thank him for what he's done. Believe in Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection. You were so overjoyed. What happened to that joy? You would have plucked out your own eyes and given it to me. You were so happy. You were so grateful. So who has, what did he say earlier in Galatians? Who has bewitched you? Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians what? 2 Corinthians 11.25. Okay, you're trying to give me the same reference, Rachel. <laughs> okay. 2 Corinthians 11.25 says, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. Okay, now we have the reference to it. Back to Galatians. Verse 16, where Paul's essentially going to say, what's changed? 
Verse 16, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Now they're rejecting him. Even talking about stoning him again because he's contradicting these others who came up from Judea to teach them they have to be circumcised. Did it say according to the law of God? No. No, did it say according to the law of Moses? No, it said according to the custom of Moses. Which means God didn't command it. Moses didn't command it. When they say the customs of Moses, they mean our man-made rules and regulations. Did God not command it though? Because no. No. when the mixed multitude came out of Egypt, the Gentile portion of them could not eat Passover unless they were circumcised. Right, but there is no commandment there. I've gone through every verb in one of the earlier teachings. That might be the there is no commandment. So, if there's no commandment, how did they know they couldn't do it? Yeah, that's a good question. God says if they want to eat it, then they will go through the circumcision process. But they don't have to eat it. It's a choice they make. What the book of Genesis says is that circumcision is a sign of a covenant. But that doesn't mean that they have to be. They get to make a choice. They're not part of Israel then. I understand that. But if you look at the verbs, in biblical Hebrew, there are three kinds of commandments. There's a positive commandment. There's a temporary negative. There's a permanent negative. There are no commandments that say you must be physically circumcised. There is one that says you must be circumcised of the heart. So circumcision, physical circumcision, was a sign of a covenant. Let's go back to Genesis. Those are the exact words God uses. And it's not the sign, it's a sign. The other sign is circumcision of the heart. Got to turn back and find it. Chapter 17, verse 11. We'll start in verse 10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and every descendant after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. We see that word shall in English. We think a commandment. What is the Hebrew word shall? There isn't one. The English translators put the shall there. It says, every male child among you shall be circumcised. You can only give a commandment to you. Not to he, not to they. In biblical Hebrew, you can only give a commandment to you. It can be masculine singular, masculine plural, feminine singular, feminine plural. But it's only to you. So every child is referring to a he. So there can't be a commandment in that situation. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. If you look, that's not a commandment either. And it shall be, here's what it is. It shall be a sign of a covenant. It's not the covenant. It's a covenant between me and you. So like the wedding ring is a sign that we belong to God, physical circumcision is a sign that you're in the Abrahamic covenant. The other sign is circumcision of the heart, and that one is commanded. So was it a rogue angel that was threatening to kill Moses so that Zipporah had to no. grab that knife and... Nope. 
It was not. So you'll have to go through and look at all these verbs yourself as we did the one night, but trust me, not a, not a single one of them is a command form, not a one. So he really didn't have to circumcise his kid? It's a sign of a covenant. He did need to circumcise his kid because if he was going to go lead the rest of Israel into the covenant, he needed to be in the covenant. That's just Asa. That's right. Okay. All right. Back to Galatians. But that's the reason in Acts 15 it says the custom of Moses, not the law of Moses. And that's where if you go to that portion we covered Acts chapter 15, we had to go through each and every one of the verbs to see if any of them was a commandment and none of them were. Okay, verse 16 of Galatians 4. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? She wants to know what changed. You would have given me your very eyes, and now you hate me because I tell you salvation is by faith. You were so excited. You were so happy, and now you're so mad. Ah, here's what we find what's happened. Verse 17. They zealously court you. What's it mean, zealously? Not just strongly, but are they offering them other incentives? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you. Exclude you from what? From salvation. They want to exclude you from salvation. Why? That you may be zealous for them. Go back to the Baltimore Catechism. Baltimore Catechism says, what day is the Sabbath? The Sabbath is Saturday. Then why do we go to church on Sunday? It says we go to church on Sunday to show that the Pope has the power on earth to change God's law and bind men to it. And then they say, well, how do we know the Pope has this power? And the response is because even the Gentiles obey him. I'm sorry, even the Protestants obey him. The same thing that we're doing back in the book of Galatians. Those who came up from Judea were not trying to lead people into salvation. They were trying to lead people into worshiping them. Obey me, not God. Same thing that happened in the 4th century in the Catholic Church. It's the same thing that happens over and over again. But instead of just telling you, let's go look. The false teachers. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. Second Peter, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Peter explains the motivation of the false teachers. Verse 1, but there were also false prophets among the people that is in Israel of old, even as there will be false teachers among you 
who was secretly bringing destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Name me one Christian doctrine that denies the Lord. Transubstantiation, which says Messiah gave human flesh and human blood to the apostles before he was crucified. If he did that, then he died a sinner. And what death, what would his death accomplish? Nothing. Verse 2, and many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth that's Torah, Psalm 119, verse 142, will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. What's it mean by covetousness? What do they want? They want you to honor them. They want you to obey them rather than God. Go back to Matthew. If I remember correctly, it's chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he's one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. According to the Lord, were they leading these proselytes to God? No. Were they leading them to heaven? No. No. Still got them in anti missionaries today. Yep, still got them in anti missionaries today. Matthew chapter 7. I used to have such fun with the anti missionaries. Matthew chapter 7. They would send me emails, say, we'll give you $10,000 if you can answer the following question. They never sent the checks, never. <laughs> but pretty soon they quit asking. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. You're going to see that same phrase in Galatians. And by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. That means to the lake of fire. And there are many who go in by it. Verse 14, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. But all those in verses 13 and 14 think they're on the road to heaven. They all think they're saved. So why are so many on the wrong road? Verse 15, beware of false prophets, meaning false teachers, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. So not everyone who calls Yeshua Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven says, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And he will say to me in that day, in what day? In the day of the Lord, on judgment day. Lord, Lord, if we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, this to them is the proof that they believed in God. It says, and then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness, breaking the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. Who said this? Messiah did. In Luke, these words in Luke just ring through my mind. I've never been able to forget them. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Again, the words are read. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Ah, this is getting too depressing. Go back to Galatians chapter 4. Verse 18. Verse 17 said, They zealously court you. And verse 18 says, But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, not only when I am present with you. So be zealous, but be zealous in a good thing. What does Paul testify about himself? That he was zealous, but what? but without knowledge. He was zealous, but he was wrong. He was zealous for the wrong thing. That's why he says here, it's good to be zealous for a good thing always. So be zealous, but in a good thing. And something that leads you away from God is not a good thing. Verse 19 says, my little children. Why does he call them my little children? Because he's the one who brought them to faith. And he's saying, you've been bullied by bad people, by my little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Messiah is formed in you. Which means he doubts their salvation. He thinks that the false teachers have led them astray. And he says, I'm going to keep preaching until you get saved and I know you're saved. Let's go to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Notice one thing he doesn't say is, hey, I remember when you walked down the aisle made a profession of faith and I dipped you in the river myself. Therefore, you're saved, so get over it. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, I'm going to keep preaching at you till you get it right. Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. On the same day, Yeshua went out of the house and sat by this sea. Which sea? The Sea of Galilee. And great multitudes were gathered together to him so that he got into a boat and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. Why does he do that? Do you know where he is? On the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, there's a really nice hill that's shaped like an amphitheater. And when you go down at the water and speak, you can hear all over the side of that mountain without any amplification. That 
and even on the lake at my house, if the kids are outside, uh -huh. I can hear them up at the house. You can hear the them up at the house. The water amplifies everything that they're saying. The water amplifies, yep. I've gone to that place, and I've gone down by the water, and I've preached, and people would hear all the way up the side of the mountain. It's a cool place. But that's why he does. Verse 3, Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. Do you know who the sower is? He is. What's being sown? The gospel message. As he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. What are the birds? Demons. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But then the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. So they heard the gospel message. They got excited about it. But then when false doctrines came, they got confused, and they fell away. That's what Paul is saying has happened to the Galatians. Verse 7, some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. The thorns are the sins of the world. They hear the gospel message. They don't want to repent. They don't want to give up their sin. They're like my father who said, I'd rather go to hell because all my friends are there anyway. How much John and Betty's regretting those words now? Verse 8, but others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Paul's saying, you were like those that fell on stony places. There was enough earth for the seed to take root and to grow and for you to be happy and excited until the false doctrines came. Then you died. That's a question that just hit me. What's that? I was saved under false doctrine. You were I saved know. under false doctrine? I know that I know that Jesus saved. But you know that you know that you were saved and changed. But here it says it couldn't have happened. This says that it's a good thing you didn't come to Judgment Day that way, being greatly confident in your salvation, only to hear him say, I never knew you. That's why we live in such a beautiful, blessed day today. Because the rapture is going to come in our lifetimes, unless y'all tick off and leave me. But... <laughs> If you, how many of you read the Left Behind series? I'm reading book one right now. I'm almost to the end. And the preachers that are left behind are going, it couldn't be the rapture because I'm still here. When, where they should be going, why am I still here? Yeah, okay. Verse 19, Galatians 4, verse 19, I digress. My little children for whom I labored in birth, I labor in birth again until Messiah is formed in you. He says, it didn't take the first time, but I'm going to sow the seed and sow the seed and sow the seed until you get it down pat. Verse 20, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tune, for I, my tone, tune, tone, same thing. <laughs> for I have doubts about you. What does he have doubts about? Whether they're as tall as he thought. Whether their hair is the color he thought. Whether they were truly saved. What does this do to the doctrine of once saved, always saved? It's, it says, make sure that you're saved. 
I agree that one's saved, always saved, but I think a lot of people are not saved that think they are. Yes, ma'am? Saved is a process. You've been listening exactly right. So we are being saved. It doesn't mean we didn't start the process. Right. But we can veer off on a, a, a tangent and we don't get to the end where we are. Really right. You must continue the race. You've been listening exactly right. Find me a scripture, any scripture that says we have been saved. And what you're going to find when you look at the Greek is our being. it's our being. It's an ongoing process. You got your PhD the day you enrolled. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice if you did? No. Let's just skip all those studies and exams. But you can really start right. You can start right and then get off the track. Yeah. And that's what Paul's saying. Is i got to get you back on the track. And he says he keeps his own body in subjection yes. so he doesn't get off the track. Yeah. It's necessary. Yep. I was just looking before service started tonight again, going through all the different places where it says things like, you have been saved, you were saved, and trying to find one where it actually says that in the Greek, and I haven't found one yet. Okay. So let's go back to Galatians. We're in chapter 4, verse 22. Oh, Hagar and Sarah, which means we, gotta, we skipped 21. Got to do 21. Tell me, you desire to be under the law. Do you not hear the law? What does it mean to be under the law? It means to be saved by the law. To be under the law is your method of salvation. You were never saved under the law. That's right. That's why it says, tell me, you who desire to be. Because who's been saved by the law? Nobody. Not now, not ever. And then the rest of the chapter is to use an analogy to drive home the point. For it's written, where do you suppose it's written? In Aesop's fables? No, in the Torah. That Abraham had two sons. One by a bondwoman, what was her name? Hagar. The other by a free woman, her name? Sarah. How is it that he came to have Ishmael by Hagar? Because God had promised a child through Sarah. And it had been a long time and Sarah hadn't had a child. So she said, I got a thought. Let me give you Hagar. Let's help God keep his promise. How does that work out? Let's read. Verse 23, but he was of the bondwoman, that's Ishmael, was born according to the flesh. That's like trying to be saved through works. And uh, he of the free woman through promise, that's like being saved by faith. Which is why in verse 24, Paul says, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants. They're not the two covenants. They represent the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage. Slave keeps the commandments out of fear of punishment, which is Hagar. And this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is. 
and is in bondage with her children, trying to be saved by works. And that's not possible. But the Jerusalem above is free. That's talking about the new Jerusalem that comes down in Revelation chapter 21. And, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Who's the us? All those who are saved by faith. For it is written, it's written in the book of Isaiah, isn't it? Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. It's talking about Jerusalem when Messiah returns. And when God calls all the believers into Jerusalem, Jerusalem has to keep expanding out its borders, going, where did all these saved people come from? Now we, brethren... Oh, first I, take you, I should take you to Isaiah chapter 54 and show you where it is. Isaiah chapter 1. 54. That's not very far before chapter 56, is it? That's not a coincidence. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. This starts out people going, hey, wait a minute. Yeah, but it's talking about Jerusalem. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your states, your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. What kind of prophecy? End times prophecy. When you see Adonai Savaot, the Lord of hosts. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He's called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit. Like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And it goes on. But it's talking about the believers being brought into the Messianic kingdom and how Jerusalem will go. Where did all these children come from? <laughs> if somebody today is referred to as a Jewish person, what tribe are they from? Judah. Judah. What about the ten tribes that are in exile? Where are they? They're scattered around the world. But does God know where they are? Oh, yeah. oh absolutely. In Revelation 7, he calls 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, not counting the tribe of Dan. Okay, but since we're in chapter 54, just look at chapter 56, which says when, when God brings the believers into the kingdom, they're not all Jewish. 
There's many from the Gentile world. That's in verse 6. Also the sons of the foreigner. Hebrew word nekar means non-Jewish person. Who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord. To be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain. What's a mountain in prophecy? A kingdom. So which non-Jews are going to get brought into the Messianic kingdom? Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Are they saved by works? No. Why do they keep those? Out of faith. Because they love God. Okay, we have just a couple minutes left. Actually, we don't. We're out of time, aren't we? So we'll pick up next time, Lord willing, in Genesis. No, we're in Galatians. Goodness. <laughs> My mind's all over the place tonight. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 28.